Turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and then Jonah. Jonah chapter 3. You don't have to turn there. Uh, when you, Jonah's where you need to be. I just want to read something from <clears throat> a couple other places very quickly. I can find my places. <clears throat> in John chapter 7, before I read Jonah, in John chapter 7, there was a, a division among the people. And as this division is spelled out, uh, they were trying to arrest Jesus, but were unable to because no one ever spoke like him, so they didn't arrest him. And then as that passage goes on down, there's a man by the name of Nicodemus, same Nicodemus of John 3, Nicodemus who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, he said to them, this is John 7, 51, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, so here's these Jewish leaders and this is their response. Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. That's what they said. In the book of 2 Kings, in chapter 14, under the reign of Jeroboam II, as he's reigning in Israel, in 2 Kings 14, 25, he restored the border of Israel from Lebo-Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. Gath-Hefer is in Galilee. So if they had searched and read their Bibles, they would find out that there is a prophet from that region other than Christ. His name was Jonah. I think, it's my view, that they had discarded Jonah because they didn't like the reality that Jonah is the one who took mercy and grace to the wicked Ninevites. And so they had wrote him off their Christmas card list, had nothing to do with him, and didn't consider him to be a prophet. But the Word of God says he was a prophet in Gath-Hefer, which is in the Galilean area. Same as Christ. They just didn't like the truth is more than likely the case. Jonah chapter 3, the prophet Jonah. The prophet Jonah. Chapter 3, verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Quote, yet 40 days 
and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Or you could translate overturned. Verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed Jonah. Right, you see it there, right? They understood the prophet to speak for God. So they believed God. And as a response to their belief, they called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Father in heaven, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word this day. You would apply it however you see fit to apply it. (coughs) That once again, I, once again your people, would cherish the gospel and the power that is within it. That we would actually believe that the gospel gives sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, loosens the tongue of the mute, causes the lame man to leap for joy, the blind man to see, and the dead man to live. Lord, sometimes we doubt. We preach. We pass out tracts. We invite people. We share the gospel. We decree the things of God, and we see little to no response. Lord, forgive us for unbelief. Forgive us for our doubts. Lord, if we don't believe the gospel, what else would we use? God, help us to maintain a healthy view of the gospel. Help us to be more like Barney. Just have one bullet. Help us be like Paul, determined nothing among, to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. And Lord, I know there's a lot of people that are not open-air preachers. There's not a lot of people called to this type of ministry. Not everybody stands in a pulpit, Lord. <laughs> but oh Lord, if we can find a place where the gospel is cherished, let us support it with everything we have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Every generation bewails its state of affairs. You can read through biblical history. Every generation thought it can't get much worse than what it is right now. The wickedness of Nineveh was no secret to the world. It's not an isolated case of wickedness. It's known that that Nineveh is wicked. Its evil power has made its way all the way up to God. We learned that in chapter 1. Their evil has come before me. It's very well known just how wicked they were. You can even go over a hundred years later to the prophet Nahum, and you'll find there's dead bodies laying everywhere. It's like trying to go preach the gospel in Chamula in the state of Chiapas. Just prepare to die when you go. No prophet of God, no prophet of God has any desire to be called to First Baptist Nineveh. Nobody wants to go there and preach. Nobody. It's a pagan place. People hate God. They don't want nothing to do with God. And so nobody's signing up for this mission trip. As a matter of fact, the prophets of Israel didn't even consider those type of people worthy of hearing the gospel. You want that in present day? It's like the view some people have of Mexicans. I don't want to give them the gospel. Tell them to go to their own country. God sends you a mission field, and your response is, go home. What kind of nonsense is this? God sends all of Mexico here. You ought to learn Spanish and preach. 
Got to say, look, Jesus dice, yo soy el camino y la verdad y la vida. Nadie viene al Padre sino por mí. Necesite arrepentirte, creer en Cristo Jesús. Es importante por el corazón. I mean, you ought to have a burden here. Speaking in tongues this morning, get your attention. Jonah knows he'll be ridiculed by his peers if he goes and preaches to those evil men of Nineveh. It's also true that in the back of Jonah's mind, he believes that if he goes and preaches, that God would actually have mercy on them. And here's the truth. Jonah didn't want them to get any mercy. He preferred they get what he thinks they deserve than for them to actually be pardoned. When problems exist in a society, people begin to look for solutions some rhetorical questions. These questions get asked. How do we fix the homeless situation? What do we do with the increase of crime? What needs to be done to correct our economy? How how are we to deal with evil countries that increase in military strength? What is to be done with that neighbor of mine? What, What is the solution for illegal immigrants? And on and on the questions go. Now, the world answers these questions, but they only deal with physical realities. The world gives money. They build houses. They provide tax relief. They increase the minimum wage. They provide welfare. They print out stimulus checks, etc., etc., etc. The religious world may be more noble, but just as ineffective. The religious world provides food. They provide clothes. They do acts of community service. The church does prayer walks, community events to build relationships, Mother's Day out programs, fish fries, other creative things, somehow to build a relationship with the world. As if that's possible. (laughs) Christian and the world in harmony. Does that not sound weird to us? Some churches digress so far down to connect the world, to connect to the world. They say, I know we can connect to the world if we give away Easter eggs. Here's a better one. You can even come to our church and hunt Easter eggs and be registered for season passes at Six Flags. We'll use season passes at Six Flags as a stalking horse to get you in the church. All right, here's an idea. We'll just throw some candy in a trunk and get you to come by, and that way at least you'll be at church. We'll get our pastor to dress up as Santa Claus. Whatever it takes to get them in. However, God gives only one remedy for the wicked. Just one. He sends preachers to preach impending judgment and the necessity of repentance and faith. That guy preaching out there, it's all judgment. Yep, and that's what's coming. That guy just preaching about hell. Yeah, because you're almost there. What did you want me to preach? Are you going to be comfortable when you die? You're not going to be comfortable if you die without Christ. Oh, he's just hellfire and brimstone. You need to be aware. <clears throat> one remedy, the gospel. Singular remedy, verses 1 and 2. You see that in the text there. God doesn't change his plan nor his mind. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. It says the same thing it said in chapter 1 with one additional phrase at least. He says, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. But he adds this to chapter 1. He adds this phrase. 
proclaim to it the message that I tell you. It's the church's responsibility. It's my responsibility. Every Christian responsibility is the same. We are to declare the message God gave us. That's the only message. You can't spruce it up in any other way. The king of the universe gave a message to the church to be communicated to the world. What do we do with that message? We just proclaim it. We communicate it in writing, verbally, one-on-one, with a family, at a gathering, at an event, publicly up on the street. Whatever the context is, only have one message. Only got one bullet, and we've got to communicate that message. Notice the consistency here in God. God is determined for Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach the gospel. That's what God has decreed. Jonah says, I'm not doing it. I'm going to do a different thing, and I'm going a different way. I'm going the opposite direction of what God has commanded. Good luck. Buena suerte. Good luck with that. Try outrunning God in your endeavors of rebellion. God then apprehended Jonah and made him reassess the situation. You might want to think this through again because I'm going to give you the same call I already gave you. Well, Jonah had a change of heart on how to respond to the commands of God. It's like, you know what? I think I probably should go to Nineveh. Might be a three-month journey across dangerous territory to a wicked, God-hating people, but it's better than rebelling against God. God gives him the same command. And I do remind you, just in case you get misunderstood along the way, Anytime God speaks the truth to you, it's an act of mercy. Somebody confronts you, somebody brings truth out to you, and you get mad, that's on you. The attitude's wrong, oh, this is wrong, everything's wrong. Look, what does God say? You understand that God can just let you go? He said, just go and run. I won't confront you about nothing, and you can wake up in hell and deal with it with your friends. When God speaks from His Word and applies it to your heart and the arrow pierces, thank you, God. Thank you for telling me this because if you didn't warn me, nobody else would. That's what He does here. God speaks to Nineveh. It's a wicked city, evil people, and they hate God. And He does so with Jonah. He speaks to Jonah and Jonah says, No, I'm not having it. And God speaks to him again. Note, God didn't have to speak again. Like his resources are limited. I'm thinking he could have got another prophet. There's not, the, Jonah's not the only one. I can give this message to Isaiah. I can give it to Jeremiah. I can get them to go. But no, God says, Jonah, I told you to go to Nineveh. What an act of mercy. A second opportunity to obey. What a, what a privilege that God would confront me twice, three times, eight times, because God didn't have to confront me at all. What a blessed mercy that he'd get my attention. Men should be very cautious how they respond to the word of God when it is read or heard. The commission is this to, to Jonah, get up from the place you are at and go to Nineveh. Now, the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses the word keruso. Keruso means to make public declaration, to proclaim aloud. The Hebrew word here also means to proclaim. It's pretty easy. I don't have to make this very hard. Open your mouth 
and tell this wicked people what I said. That's God's remedy for an evil place. Don't build a house. Don't give them a stimulus check. Don't do a prayer walk. Don't identify a man of hope or a strong man. None of that's there. Open your mouth and say, this is what the king of the universe has said. It's just the only thing and the responsibility is to communicate this commission that God has given. It's the same one we have in Matthew 28. It's the same one we have throughout the New Testament of taking the gospel to the world. Now, what's the content of the message? Proclaim it. Let me translate it this way. Proclaim to it the proclamation that I tell you. Proclaim to it the proclamation that I tell you. It's God's message. It's the responsibility of the prophet to speak what God has said. Maybe like Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 26, verse 2. Thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house. Speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord. All the words that I command you to speak to them, do not hold back a word. Here's the word, and I'm going to communicate it all to them. Whatever happens, happens, but I bear accountability for the word that I've received. That's what is upon Jonah. This is the content. It's upon the church. I've been in church long enough. Well, your church would grow if you had Mother's Day Out program. Your church would grow if you had a children's sermon before you preach. Your church would grow if you do some more fun activities. You have nothing for children. You have nothing for children. They tell that to preachers all the time. You have nothing for children. Excuse me, I do have something for your child. The gospel. That if they don't repent and believe Christ, they're going to end up in hell. That's very, very important. I mean, I don't have an Easter egg hunt because the Easter egg hunt is not going to help their soul. Open air preaching was no more relevant in Jonah's day than it is in ours. As John Calvin said, quote, I send thee a man unknown and of no rank and a stranger to denounce ruin on men, not a few in number, but on a vast multitude, and to carry on a contest with the noblest city and so populous that it may seem to be an entire region to itself. I'm going to take a nobody from Gath Heifer, and I'm going to send them over to Nineveh to stand up and say, Thus saith the Lord. Well, that'll never work. It's the only thing that'll work. You see, the gospel is the only thing that can change a man's heart. Nothing else is going to do it. You can build houses till Jesus comes. You can give out stimulus checks till we all die. But if the heart is not changed, there is no solution. It must be repentance. There must be faith. What do you think Jonah was doing in Nineveh? When the Word of God is preached, it's great mercy. When He sends, he sends you on a mission by His Word, it's a great mercy. And when God gives you a message of judgment, it is a great mercy that should be received with a humble heart that seeks after the living God. Point number two, surveying Nineveh, verse three. So Jonah arose. So Jonah arose. You'll remember back in chapter one, 
verse 3, Jonah rose. Same action on both cases, right? Chapter 1, Jonah rose. Chapter 3, Jonah rose. But he rose to go the opposite way in 1. and chapter 3, he rose to go the right way. He arose and he didn't go to Tarshish, he went to Nineveh. He did so in accordance to the word of the Lord. <clears throat> now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breath. <clears throat> now that's, this whole deal has been interpreted, this great city idea has been interpreted in several different ways. I won't belabor them very long. Great city could be grandeur or dignity or splendor. So it's a city that's important to God. You can think of it that way. A city whose response would affect numerous cities. <clears throat> now, if you want a, an example, there's so 30 plus million people in Mexico City. Mexico City is a, is a city of grand importance. How so? If all of Mexico City, from the president down to the peasant, repented and proclaimed God is alive, it would affect the entire country. So it could be that way. It could be this way with Nineveh. If Nineveh repents, the shockwaves are going to go out through the world. Or it could be simply geography, the size of it. Some translators would translate it this way, quote, it required three days' journey to walk from one side to the other. It was that large. Or it could be large numerically. If you take the end of Jonah, chapter 4, verse 11, and you look down there, it says there's 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left hand. If you conclude with many that those are referenced to children, then you have to add in fathers and mothers for the 120,000 children. So now we're up to about a half a million people. It's a big city. Could be that. Then there was a general custom of the prophetic days. I don't buy this one, but it was a custom of the day. Day one, the prophet introduces himself to the leadership of the city. Day two, the prophet gives the message that God told him to give. Day three, the prophet receives questions and bids them farewell and leaves. I don't think it was quite that cute in Nineveh. I don't think the king was interested until the preaching came and the Spirit of God blowed upon them and conviction came. I don't think he's interested in talking to Jonah and introducing him to give a message to his wicked city. So I say the city is so big that it took the prophet three days of preaching to get his message to spread through the city. They're not putting it on Facebook Live. They don't have it on YouTube video. They don't have any of these modern devices. So how does one side of the town and the other side of the town here? you got to do a lot of preaching. So you preach over here, you preach over here. These people tell these people, these people tell these people. And word begins to spread. And this whole word gets worked up, and it makes it all the way to the ears of the king. I know some of you don't believe this. I, I can't help you. I can just tell you this is what the Word of God says. It is as if there's so much preaching going on in America that it comes to the ears of Joe Biden. And he's like, oh my, God's going to destroy us. We should repent. And Biden says, I want all of America to go into a fast and put on sackcloth and ashes and just wait and see what God will do. This is what happened. Because of the gospel, not because of anything else. Gospel strategy. A city well known in that part of the world, containing about a half a million people, size demands all of this preaching to go on. God sends Jonah into this morally corrupt city to stand up and say, God is going to judge you. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh 
is going to be overthrown. Size of a place should not prohibit the communicating of the gospel. The gospel is powerful. It alone can change a city, a state, a country, and even a world. So I preached at so-and-so place. I shared a gospel track at so-and-so place, and all these people laughed at me. Maybe one would receive, and they tell one, and they tell one, and they tell one, and they tell one, and thus a church is birthed, and the gospel goes forward. It can happen. How do you think the gospel got here anyway? There's like 11 guys on the other side of the world that believed this stuff. They preached it. People received it. Churches were established. Membership was established. And the church began to spread. And it came all the way around to Briar, Texas. Gospel did that nothing else. Church, I encourage you never to forget, never to diminish the primary use of the gospel for the changing of human hearts. Let me give you practical illustrations right quickly, just in general. You say things like this. I don't know what's wrong with my family. I don't know what's wrong with my coworkers. What's wrong with this world? I don't, why are people doing what they're doing? I don't understand why people are so wicked. Why do people talk like this? Why do they act like this? What's going? Look, you do know they do these things because they have a bad heart. That's why they do them. Why don't they come to church? Why don't they worship? Why don't they praise? Why don't they love the gospel? Why don't they read their Bibles? Why don't they do these things? Because they have a dead heart. That's why. Stop asking. The reason the world is like it is is because men are depraved. That's the issue. Stood in a store Friday night, and a guy says to me, I don't know anything about the Bible. I'm not shocked. How can a spiritually dead man know anything? They don't know. He said, what are we going to do with this wicked world? The only solution is the gospel. Either you believe it is the power of God or you don't. And here's the sad part. If you don't believe the gospel is powerful enough, you will put something in its place. Probably Oprah, Dr. Phil. Straight preaching, chapter 3, verse 4. So Jonah began. He began going to the city, and he's going a day's journey, and he called out, quote, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. Proclamation. He engaged the people by entering where they are. Surely you know this, at least be encouraged by your church. I've been in church long enough to know that this is a common practice of the day. You cannot even begin to add up the money that the church has spent to get the world to come to church. You, you can't compute it with the best of calculators how much money has been thrown down to try to get somebody out there who hates God to come in here to worship Him. Every event that you can imagine and some that I don't even want to imagine have been tried to get them to come. And the principle has always been the same. You can reach thousands without any money. You don't have to pay anything. You just go where they are and communicate to them the truths that you believe in your heart, wherever they're at. You don't have to pay for anything. Save the church $100,000 right there. I'm not kidding. It's going on. You wouldn't believe what this church spent in order to try to get every snot-nosed kid in the world in here for vacation Bible school. This entire sanctuary looked like a circus. It was so decorated. You wouldn't understand the hours and the money that was spent to try to get them to come and come in here for that week and to never return again. 
They're never going to stay unless the heart is changed. And the only way a heart's going to be changed is with the gospel. Here again, the Septuagint in verse 4 uses the word keruso. It's a different Hebrew word here, but the Hebrew word means to say, to declare, or to command. So he goes a day's journey, he calls out, he, he commands, he declares, he preaches, opens his mouth and communicates these things. The greatest revival in biblical history, hands down, without question, is what happened in Nineveh. And the reason the revival came is because of the preached gospel alone. Now ponder this. From the text alone, just from the text, the message has no hope. From the text alone. Now there's implications. I get that. I'll give those to you. But from the text alone, this man stands up, quote, yet... 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Where's the love in that? Right? I mean, that's the response of the world we live in, right? I mean, that's not very loving. That's not very merciful. The God I worship loves me. Look, dude, in 40 days, he's going to wipe you out. That's the message that Jonah preaches. It's clear. Nobody misunderstands the prophet. It's direct and it's powerful. And the message only gives one promise. God will destroy you. That's all it promises. Nothing else in the text itself. There's no fluff. There's no humor. I don't think Jonah even knows a joke. And if he does, he's not telling it in Nineveh because he doesn't like them. There's no entertainment in his preaching. I don't even know if he's a good orator. I think he's got a guy with a bad attitude and a great message. Pending. Judgment's knocking on your door, Nineveh. You're going to overthrow, katastrepho. It's a Septuagint Greek word, katastrepho. I like that word. I'd give you the Hebrew word, but I can't pronounce it. To cause to be overturned, upset. To cause something to be in total disarray, destroy, ruin. To upset in such a way that victims lose their bearings. They turn away. They're they're misled. They're divert. They're they're just totally ruined. That's what's going to happen to your city. Be overthrown, overturned. You know where this word's used? Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah. He overturned them. He got a, another phrase in there. And take you like a, a plate and wipe it off, turn it upside down. That's what he's going to do to the city, to the nation, if you will. That's his message. Number four and last, verse five, saving faith. And the people of Nineveh, are you kidding me? Do you see this text? I, I live in America. Do, you live here, right? Go into Azel and stand up at the July the 4th fireworks show and say, God is going to destroy you. Yeah, I can tell you where your response is going to come from, from confessing Christians. Oh, you're so unloving. Oh, you must be at that church out at Briar. There's such wicked people out there. That's, that's not the way I would do it. Excuse me, you're not doing it. You're not doing anything. That's the response from the world in which we live. That should be the response of Nineveh. But the response is, they believed God. Well, I'd say this, but they won't believe. You don't know that. 
I don't know that. It might be this very week that you give the gospel to someone and they, all of a sudden they're like, why haven't you told me this? I've been telling you this for 10 years. All of a sudden it may click. But what else are you going to give them? You may believe God this week. You understand, your lost grandma, grandpa, uncle, aunt, niece, cousin, nephew, all those people in your family you meet with that hate God, and you try to share, and they mocked you, and they ridiculed you, and they maligned you, and you say, what am I supposed to do? What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to pray for their souls and give them the gospel. I already did that. What do you, they're going to hell. Like, what do you want to do? Give them gospel minus? You, you give the same gospel. You keep living it out. You keep presenting it to your children week after week after week after week. Your little kid says, well, I don't know why I did this. You did it because you got a wicked heart. You did it because your heart's depraved. That's why you did it. That's why I keep preaching the gospel to you, little Johnny. That's why I keep trying to tell you to believe Christ. Because until you believe Christ, you're going to keep on doing wicked. We preach every week. Mothers are preaching in their homes every week to little Susie's and little Johnny's. And she's saying, come to Christ, come to Christ, come to Christ. Look, your heart is wicked. You lied because you're a liar. You took that because you're a thief. And you need Christ. You're preaching in a home every week, right? You're doing this. We're doing this in our homes. We're doing this in our workplaces. Because when the gospel is preached in Nineveh, they believed God. They connected the preaching of Jonah directly to the voice of God. They were convinced God would destroy them for their wickedness. Their belief caused them to act in humble repentance. What you don't see in the text that is here is what? The Holy Spirit of God. The truth is proclaimed. How in the world did this king all the way down to the peasant repent? The Spirit of God took the Word of God and applied it to the heart of man in such convicting passion that it caused them to be broken. Yeah, look, when you share the gospel, you're not doing it in your own, your own strength, your own power. Like, like you've got to be powerful enough to do it. You're giving his message and he breathes on it. The implication of Jonah's preaching. This is where I get to the implication part. I know what the text says, and I know that he only says in the text, 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. But I must proceed in some type of implication because I believe that Jonah knew the gospel. I'll show you that in a moment, but I believe it's very clear, however this preaching went, however long the sermon was, I believe it's very clear that Jonah made it clear to the people of Nineveh that they were sinners. You say, well, how do you know that? If not, what are they repenting of? You've got to be made aware of sin to repent of it. I believe Jonah made it clear that they deserved God's judgment. You broke God's law, and God's going to punish you for breaking his law. And he's shown God to be holy and an authority. I believe Jonah made it clear that God was the one he was preaching about, the God of heaven, this God. You want an explanation of that? You go back to chapter 1. Even the pagan sailors knew that Jonah's talking about a different God than what they were talking about. Jonah made it clear. This is the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. This is the God who done the deliverance of the people from Egypt. This is the God. I think he made it clear. Jonah made it, made it clear the nature of God. He made it understandable. Certainly this means the people of Nineveh comprehend. I told you many times over, I believe it's all-inclusive. And he says at the end of the rich man and Lazarus, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, that would include Jonah. 
they don't believe the gospel that is proclaimed by them, they will never believe. So here Jonah preaches judgment, preaches impending judgment, but in there I believe there's a revelation of mercy for those who would repent. However, moving on, attitude. Attitude is a lot. Their humility is seen in two things. The people of Nineveh's attitude is seen in two things. Number one, they declared a fast. You stop eating for a long time, you're serious about something, especially if you're Baptist. Right? Skip four days. You know what I'm talking about. They put on sackcloth. This is a foreign phrase to us we don't understand. But the quote, this is from Matthew Henry, the wearing of sackcloth, especially to those who were used to fine linen, was a very uneasy thing. They would not have done it if they had not a deep sense of their sin and their danger by reason of sin, which hereby they designed to express. How men respond to divine truth is a reflection of the attitude of their heart. How you respond to divine truth is a revelation of your heart. Now, verses 6 to 10, I don't have time this morning, obviously, show the result of genuine repentance. What, what a position the king reached, and what a good word he gave to his people when he said this. This is what he said. Who knows? Who, who knows? God may turn. God may relent. It may happen. He, God could turn from His fierce anger that we may not perish. It's at least possible, guys. Let's be genuine about our brokenness and let's see what this God does that Jonah has preached to us. Now, I don't know if the king of Nineveh knew the words of Jeremiah or not, but they are true whether he knew them or not. In Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 7, it says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck it up, break it down, and destroy it, if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. How many people have told me that God changed his mind, God changed his ways, and they quote Jonah 3 and say, look, in verse 10, God relented, God repented of his action. And I'm like, have you ever read your Bible? God held true to his word. His word was, if I send a word of judgment and they repent, then I won't destroy them. He was perfectly consistent and changed nothing. Your response to the preaching of God's gospel will be indicative of your heart. You must repent and you must believe or you will be destroyed. God sent His Son as a substitute for sinners. He died on the cross. was buried in the grave. And the third day He rose from the dead. He's commanded all men everywhere, men, women, boys, and girls, to repent of their sin, and to believe upon Christ alone for salvation. Apart from that, you will never make it to heaven. So your responses will either be of humility 
or of pride. It's not just for the lost. They're the church. What's your response to the gospel? And think about it. What do, you, what do you want us to do for Easter week? I mean, it would be pretty creative, wouldn't it? you got a pastor with the last name of Easter. Make me a bunny suit with big ears. Pastor Easter the bunny is going to preach this week. And we're going to give away candy eggs to all the kids. And we've got a prize egg. And you can win a season pass to Six Flags. You want me to do that? Is that what you want your church to do? Is it this gospel thing we've been preaching for 22 years. The church doesn't seem to be growing all that much. We're not having all that many baptisms. I think maybe we need the Easter bunny to come. God forbid and over my dead body. Either the gospel is going to win the day or we're all going to hell. The gospel is not impotent. You see, because there's another reality of the gospel you might not like. The gospel not only saves men, the gospel hardens hearts. But the gospel is never neutral. Never. Each individual and each local church body must resolve what it is they believe. If the gospel is the power of God, then it must be the remedy for all situations. Let us speak like Paul today as we leave. I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. Every event, every difficulty in the church, outside the church, every reality of depravity in the world is to be addressed with the gospel. People must be called to repent because the world is going to be destroyed. It's going to be destroyed. Nobody without the gospel is going to make it. That's why the church exists, to shine the light. The problem with our society is a sin problem. It's a heart issue. It's a spiritual deadness that is being manifested in physical actions. The things we see, the things we hear about, the things we experience in our world are no different than what's going on in Nineveh. God sent Jonah with one bullet, the gospel. If they won't repent, they will suffer God's just judgment. There's no middle ground. It's the gospel alone that has the power to procure repentance and faith. It's the gospel alone that raises men from spiritual death. It's the spiritual, they've sinned spiritually against God. They deserve the judgment of God. And unless they repent and believe Jesus Christ alone, they will suffer under God's justice for all of eternity. Stop making it any different than it is. Your friend, your family member doesn't read the Bible. They don't worship. They don't come to church. They don't love God. They don't do evangelism. They don't do missions because they're lost. They are going to wake up in an eternal hell, and after 10 billion years, not one second of their sentence will have been reduced. W.A. Criswell. It's the way it is. Don't make it something it's not. Look, people die every day. They end up in eternity. And the church has been given a gospel. Make it known. Be joy-filled. Talk about the beauty of your Savior. And call men and women to Christ. Father in heaven, I pray this morning that we would really think and meditate upon the gospel. We would love the gospel more. We would cherish the gospel more. Not to become prideful and arrogant and look at me mentalities. But God, that we would love the gospel so much, we would just want everyone to have it. 
everyone to receive it and to be changed. Lord, that we would believe that the old passes away and all becomes new. We would believe that dead men are raised to life. We'd believe these things, exceed these things. Even this morning in the church, there would be some that would say, I need Christ. And there would be others that would say, I have not supported the gospel like I should. I'm ready to give more money, give more time, give more prayers, give more service, that they would ensure that the gospel would continue to march forward. I pray these things this morning by your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.